I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? What I try to do is I try to stay away from what's called the shiny object, you know? So if something's really hot, I try to stay away from that. Now that may be a failing in some ways, but um, I'm, I'm always concerned when there's too much of an exuberance or a rush towards one category. I'd like to take a little step back and say, you know, what is really that dynamic? How scalable is it? And where will it be in five years? Adnan Durrani is the Chief Executive Officer of American Halal, Saffron Road Foods, and President of Condor Ventures Incorporated, a firm devoted to strategic investing in natural food companies. Prior to his current endeavors, he served as an investment professional for almost 30 years and was most recently a partner at Blue Chip Venture Company, which led a number of media and technology ventures. On this episode, Adnan uncovers what it's really like being an entrepreneur and all of the lessons that he's learned over the years. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Adnan, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Pretty good, Sean. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I feel honored. No, no, this is a true honor on my behalf to get to speak with you. You're someone who's had success in, in multiple domains and has really been almost uh, a revolutionary in what you've been able to to build. But what I want to do is I want to I want to go back a little bit. And anytime I see someone doing something that catches my attention, I'm always intrigued about what they were like when they were younger. So, what would be a sentence to describe your younger self? Um, oh, that's a good question. Uh, I guess enterprising, uh, because uh, when I was younger, even when I was, you know, I guess nowadays they call it middle school, but when I was 11 or 12 or 13 in that age group, uh, I even had uh, a couple of different businesses. I had a, a lawnmower and landscaping business. I had uh, a candy business, and I had two paper routes. So um, I always was on the go, kind of, you know, enjoying uh, not only being a service to the community, but also finding out different entrepreneurial ways to enjoy myself. This will be fun. If you continued in any of those businesses, which one do you think you'd have the most success in today? No, that's a good question. Um, probably, I, I would guess the candy business. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so what was it about enterprise that just drew you in? Was this some innate thing you were born with, or did you see other people around you doing this, and that piqued your interest? 
I guess, especially uh, from my mother's side, a lot of her family were businessmen and entrepreneurs, my uncles and so on. So I kind of had that gene in for my mother, you know, um, who's also very enterprising. And, and she also had a catering business at one time. So, uh, you know, it kind of came from that pedigree. Uh, and then also, I think one of the main driving things was, uh, as an immigrant uh, migrating here, you know, we were always taught the work ethic of being enterprising and, and you know, getting the, get, reaping and sowing the benefits of your toil and work. And so that's how I always felt as an immigrant as well, that one of the paths to success was to, you know, go out and be enterprising on your own because America offered all of those amazing opportunities to us. I'm always intrigued when talking with someone of your background and how you assess risk. It really depends. I mean, one of the nice things about, you know, I, I like to joke with folks and tell them I came from the dark side. Uh, so I didn't start out being an entrepreneur. I was on Wall Street for many years and, and was very fortunate to have been very successful there. Um, and, you know, Wall Street, as well as engineering, my engineering background, uh, taught me to be very process-driven, you know, uh, about learning how to network ideas, people and systems, and the solutions to them. So... What I liked about that discipline, both on Wall Street and in engineering, is it really allowed me to kind of listen actively but think critically. It allowed me to really assess risk and take calculated risk. So I think that's the big difference between, say, an entrepreneur and a gambler. An entrepreneur really takes calculated, informed risk versus just gambling. I'd love to hear about how you process ideas. So now you're in the CPG, beverage space, food space, and you're navigating all the complexity that can come along with this. When, when you're assessing new ideas, new potential roads you can go down, what does that process actually look like for you? You know, it really um, is very much a collaboration. Um, I think early, early in my career, um, I tried to run it on my own because, you know, it's kind of, that's the, I guess that's the nature of youth, you know, like they say, the, uh, you know, young, the youth is wasted on the young. And, uh, and as I got older and wiser and had my head handed to me several times, uh, you know, I realized there was a different way of doing things. I mean, it was very easy to be on Wall Street and, uh, be an investor or a banker, you know, representing companies, uh, that were looking to, you know, raise funds or go public and then constantly judging them and their executives and the management team on what they were doing wrong as opposed to yourself making the trains run on time. And, uh, you know, that's a very uh, a different, uh, you know, ecosystem. And so I had to learn really about how to hire really good people. And that's one of the things at Software Road that I'm very proud of is we have just an amazing, passionate, and dedicated and disciplined team. Uh, and then bringing those kinds of team members together uh, and giving them the tools, giving them the leeway, giving them, you know, the runway, uh, to innovate and to bring their best practices onto the table. And through that kind of collaboration and consensus, uh, we build a direction. So, for example, if we're looking at launching new products in entrees, uh, especially frozen entrees, uh, you know, even though I may think there's some product that's, that's going to work really well, I always like to get the consensus of the whole team and then so we initially go, we don't do big group-focused studies or anything like that. We do use a lot of data and research to inform our decisions in terms of what trends are doing well. But when we finally uh, decide to go into a certain area, we'll take a consensus of our team, then we'll present that to 
uh, an informed uh, buyer uh, or a set of buyers at a, at a partner retailer that we have, and they'll go back and forth and through that process come up with what we think is a good you know set of products to launch. So yeah, there's a lot of collaboration that goes into it, and we, we operate on a very fast warp speed in launching products, but we always take a very deep mode in terms of making sure we have facts behind this, making sure we have you know, uh, good consensus of opinions from people that I, whose opinion I, I feel is very informative. Can we talk about that warp speed for a second? And you mentioned articulating the data, understanding that first, collaborating, and then being able to go. So is it about collecting the necessary resources up front to understand best direction, and then you're able to make a quick decision based off of that? Or is it you guys just operate at a higher level and you're able to make informed decisions very quickly right up front? That's a very good question, uh, Sean. I think it's more the latter, and and certainly we've made mistakes in that respect as well. But we often you know run before we walk uh, because we're competing against you know fifty billion, hundred billion dollar companies. Uh, is like a Gary Herser, my former partner at Sony, who used to joke that you know Dan's marketing budget budget is ten times our sales. You know it's uh, very hard when you're a small company competing in that environment. So one of the things about our team and our organization, and I hope the culture that I've tried to build here with, with our, especially that our senior management team has built at Saffron Road, is that we're very nimble, nimble we're very quick to market. Uh, we will make some mistakes along the way, obviously, because we go to market so quickly. But if we see something that's forward-looking, um, we generally don't go into a hot trend, but we try to assess what may be the trend in two, three, three four, five years, and then get to market before the CPGs will with that particular category or, you know, the particular trends that we see coming. Um, and then as a result of that, we can spend, you know, it may take a little time to get the resources in place, but also the way we go to market, the type of category we go into will also be informed by the resources we currently have that are turnkey. So, you know, a lot of our manufacturing is outsourced. We have very good relationships with our manufacturers and, you know, they know that we operate on a very fast timeline. So we do have to take in all of those considerations before we launch a new category product. But we usually got that pretty well buttoned up, you know, before a launch occurs or before we even present it to a buyer. So you mentioned about building out that team and able to handle this type of nimbleness. So, so what are you looking for? You're bringing on someone of senior management. What are the skills popping out to you? Sure. So it, it depends on the category that we're in. Uh, certainly in this case, we started in the frozen food and halal category. Um, so, in that, in that case, in Zafron Road's case, first of all, I needed a partner that really understood both the natural organic sector as well as the frozen sector, and that's why Jack Acre joined me on uh, early on when we just started the company, before we even had his name Zafron Road, and he had a, a strong background as well in the food business that had been one of the original employees of Carrot Chips, had built, helped build the Alexia brand. Uh, which was sold to Conagra. So, you know, Jack and I came on board, and John Unloff was actually my first hire, and John was actually a chef um, and had tremendous culinary expertise, was, you know, Weston Price uh, culinary chef, and also knew a lot about the halal food industry. He had his own halal company at one time. So, you know, the passion that he brought to the table in understanding culinary excellence and enabling chef-inspired products to become productized into mainstream scale 
for sale to you know retailers was a very exceptional skill set. And you know when John first came on board, we were both learning. <laughs> and but the thing that I loved about him and about Jack and a lot of the t- team members that joined since is they may not always have any of us may not always have the best sector expertise in a particular area, but we share the values and the passion and the goals that we're all trying to achieve at South Front Row. Can you dig a little deeper on that? I'm thinking about your hire with Jack and his industry experience. And I feel like multiple times you'll have two opposing views. One, you want that deep-rooted expert in that field. And then other times you want those outsiders to come in to kind of disrupt the current trends. How do you assess that? How do you figure out who you're going to bring on? Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, it's you definitely – I think it does help tremendously to have people – with uh, you know the, the best practices, the knowledge, and the experience, especially if you're looking at scaling the brand, um, and also for us, you know, we have a pretty strong investor base. And as you go to raise capital and build and scale a substantial business the way we've been fortunate enough to do, uh, I think bring investors also want to see that if you're going to be taking these kinds of risks, that you have been there, done that management team, you know, which we do. We're very fortunate we do have. Um, at the same time, uh, you want to make sure that their background is not just what I call an entrepreneur, in my opinion, which is somebody who may have been at a big CPG like a Pepsi or a, a, you know, Coke or General Mills, um, and they may have launched a product at one of those companies, but they weren't really an entrepreneur. They were an entrepreneur, and there are some very successful entrepreneurs who were entrepreneurs, but my, I've generally found that they've never been in an entrepreneurial setting before where they have to do everything. You know, they have to carry all the hats and turn the lights on at night, uh, off at night and come back in and, and really run the business and make the trains run on time. Uh, they may have a very hard time making that transition to an entrepreneurial company like Saffron Road. So, you know, both in Jack and John's case, they were entrepreneurs, you know, and, uh, and so that really interested me quite a bit. Um, and also having those relationships with uh, a lot of the big vendors and partners that we deal with, whether it's Whole Foods, whether it's Walmart, whether it's Kroger, uh, that was important at that level. Now, as we come down the line and, and fill in the team members and fill in the staff and so on, um, at that point, what's more important to me is their their passion, their drive, uh, you know, their ability, their competitiveness in terms of wanting to win, and most important, their values. You know, what are the values around not only food, but what are the values around how they feel about, uh, you know, uh, about our, the global picture of the brand and the global picture of their place in humanity? That's a really thought-provoking piece around intra versus entrepreneur, and that bit of pattern recognition, it seems you almost picked up. When did you first discover that, and how soon after that were you implementing it? Okay, that's a very good question. So I had uh, you know, built a company called Vermont Pure Spring Water many, many years ago. Um, we were one of the first you know, natural spring water companies out there. Um, and when I had originally built it, I convinced the former CEO of Avion to come on board to help me build a business. And he was a great, he was a brilliant marketer. I mean, just an amazing marketer. But he was a typical entrepreneur, you know, and... Um, and we, I had a really difficult time uh, when we were building that business because a lot of decisions that were being made were being made as if we had a $20 billion company behind us, and they, they just weren't 
what I thought were the right way to scale the business. So that was a very difficult and painful time for us. And, you know, with all, almost all my ventures except this one, we, we went through a period that was really dark. Um, and so we, we dug ourselves out of that, and I had to change the manager team and bring in, uh, you know, a couple of partners that really had more experience being entrepreneurs. So that was my first sort of the way I cut my teeth was in the water business, and we were lucky. We, we grew it to the second biggest water company in the Northeast and did very well with it in the end. But through that process, you know, uh, I, I really understood the difference between an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. And again, it doesn't mean I wouldn't hire entrepreneurs. Again, I have actually, uh, but it's just in terms of what stage of the business the business is in. I think when you're at the earliest level and you're just starting out and you have you know zero revenues and, 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 and a lot of plans in terms of how to expand, uh, you need to really bring in uh, the kind of partner or the kind of individual that understands that uh, he's not, they're not going to have a staff of 20 direct reports. They're not going to have a big budget in marketing. They're not going to have access to the big retailers initially uh, that they really need to prove, uh, you know, be in an environment and an ecosystem that's proof of concept at the first stage and then, you know, obviously building your wins in the second stage and then scaling in the third stage. And so I think it really depends what stage of the business you're in. I think you have to be very careful in those early stages. Yeah, what I'm really loving talking about you is is how you've codified these ideas, and it's not just it's a thought you have. You have direct experience from from all your history to to really codify these and, and bring them to fruition. You were talking there a minute ago about Thank decision you. making and the people that you were able to surround yourself with. So I'm wondering in today's world, when you're with Saffron Road, how are you taking inputs from those around you, assessing them? And then being able to make the correct call, even if it's going against what you initially think might be the correct path to go on. Yeah, the way we do that is, um, the way I've tried to do that is just to be a good listener, you know, and and kind of understand that often my best ideas may be the worst uh, in the end, <laughs> and that's proven itself over time, actually. So I, I've learned that you know the consensus of the group, especially the millennials on our team, can be much more impactful than what my thoughts are. Um, but also, I think not only listening actively and thinking critically or critical. But also the stellar ability to kind of communicate clearly, you know, um, and and often being patient with with folks, even if they're presenting crazy ideas, and you're really looking at the problems and confronting those, and not necessarily the individuals. So I think that that's really important, and I think that as long as you know we build a culture that's around social responsibility and around a value system. I think that everyone then understands what our brand funnel is, and people can then, if they understand where we're trying to go and where we are, then often their their input can be or their contribution can be very informative. How do you really lead the charge there with communication and making sure your communication is done clearly and articulately? Uh, I know with the Wall Street background, I don't know if you do anything similar to Amazon in terms of putting down your thoughts on paper or things of that nature. Is there anything you guys do at Saffron Road? Um, not necessarily that, but we do, you know, we, we are pretty clear about our mission. And, you know, we like to say that Zafron Road's a socially responsible brand, you know, that we're on a mission of collective progress for the betterment of humanity. And we do that by trying to inspire and connect and respect, you know, global citizens through a shared love of world cuisines. That's kind of our mission or our mantra. And by exploring, you know, by our whole team knowing that we're, a global brand trying to explore international cuisines that combine, you know, bold flavors from around the world. 
and that our, our real key is ethical consumerism, you know, bringing back ethics into the food system. I think when we codify those, when we make our mission very clear and we have it up on our walls in our office, uh, you know, as our team members come in every day, they, I think they realize that not only are we a company that's trying to, you know, have a place or an impact for the betterment of humanity, but also that we're appealing to a certain dynamic uh, among consumers and the populace that's very, you know, inspirational. And uh, I think that's what keeps everybody going every day. We're going to get to the origin story here in a second, but I'm intrigued about that as you scale. How do you make sure each new employee really has those core values and really continues to stick to the to the message you're trying to to put out there and, and and to lead with how do you make sure that happens with every new employee um you you really can't i mean it's really hard to, to monitor that we are a small company so you know each person does carry uh, quite a number of wears a number of hats and carries a lot of weight but the way we do it is we we do regular you know like on mondays every other monday we do a check-in with everybody in a morning meeting uh we try to get everybody to contribute to that meeting and talk about you know what's going on in the in the marketplace, what's going on on the sales end, and as people that are new come into the culture, they understand you know there are certain things shortcuts we won't take, and that there are certain uh, goals that everybody shares that are common, uh, and and we're very transparent about those. So I think the more people kind of land in our ethos and the ether that surrounds Zafron Road's team, they kind of pick up you know what those values are, and it often if we feel and this is very rare, but if we feel some team member is sort of, you know, off, not in their lane or not really uh, contributing to the overall mission, then we'll certainly sit down and have a discussion with them. But I think that from the beginning, most of the folks we've hired here, um, I say pretty much all of them, uh, are very much aligned with our values. No, I appreciate you being honest there and that you guys don't always make the correct decision. So it's great to hear that from a, from a true leader. So let's talk about Saffron Road, how this came to be. Uh, I know you went from Wall Street, ended up in venture capital, was in what, CPG. So then how does Saffron Road develop from all this? Yeah, good question. So, yeah, it was really uh, one of my dreams. So I, I you know, it's it's uh, we started this company back in two. Actually, the the business plan I wrote was back in two thousand and nine, and the the brand really launched around two thousand and ten. And what I was looking at was, you know, I, I, for for twenty plus years, I'd launched a number of socially responsible companies or been involved in them or an investor in them, um, and they were all about trying to bring some compassion back to humanity. And then we saw, obviously, after 9-11 and then even thereafter, enormous amount of xenophobia. Um, and I just thought, wow, you know, I'm in the food business, and is there some way to create a food brand that can be bring some sort of compassion back to the ethics around food, especially halal, because, you know, the American Muslim diaspora was being targeted uh, right after, you know, many years even after 9-11. And then after that, the xenophobia got even worse. And so I thought, okay, this may, this is, for me, maybe some kind of calling. And I remember going to, uh, Yo-Yo Ma had a, a beautiful uh, uh, event on the mall the year after 9-11 called the Silk Road. And he brought in 150 or 200 artisans from all over the world, most of them from Muslim countries. I don't know how he got them all in, but they were all in the mall. And it was a wonderful display of the commonality of humanity. You know, he just took all of the artisans from there and brought them there. Um, and the main spice used on the Silk Road was saffron. 
you know, and uh, so I thought, hey, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could start a socially conscious company that had the same values around ethical consumerism, but was halal, and then I started to study the halal industry, and I found out that the American Muslim demographics were so much uh, more uh, compelling than anywhere else in the world, where you have, you know, the average one out of five uh, American Muslim households has an MD or PhD in it, uh, making it the you know one of the most educated households in America. You think about your engineers, you think about your doctors, you think about your faculty and professors. That's the immigration that came to America from overseas. Unlike you know in Europe, where you know 40% of French Muslims are, are I mean, you know, are 40% under, undereducated compared to most French uh, Frenchmen, and same with uh, the rest of Europe. And yet you have about anywhere from five to eight million American Muslims in this country that have zero choices uh, for for dietary, you know, for halal foods, and they have a buying power of over 200 billion. And they're 70% more brand conscious, and they also have uh, pretty high affluence, 67% uh, higher disposable income. So I thought about all of this, and I thought, wow, this is a marketer's dream. This is a huge market there, and nobody's appealed, to, you know, uh, doing anything with it. So that was kind of the starting point, but I always felt very strongly that that may have been where we're starting, but what we really wanted to do was build a brand that was ubiquitous, that was really appealed to natural organic consumers, especially millennials. Now remember, this is 10 years ago when everybody was boohooing the millennials. You know, everyone said, wow, that's a lot of experts in the food industry were telling me, why are you focusing on millennials? You know, they have, they're not brand loyal, they have no money, and guess what? This is an aging America. You should be focused on baby boomers. That's the growth population that's, that also has better income, you know, and they're brand loyal. Um, and we didn't, we rejected that, uh, you know, notion. We felt that, look, baby boomers will always be a big percentage of our business, but millennials eventually, when they get older, they're going to get married, they're going to buy homes, they're going to have children, uh, and their needs are going to be shifting. And sure enough, we're lucky. We got lucky that today, Goldman Sachs says the millennial generation is the wealthiest in American history, the fastest growing two trillion buying power. So we got lucky. That was kind of one. Of, I think we indexed higher than any other frozen entree brand with millennials. So you know we were very, we were very lucky in that way. But you know the, the interesting story of how we started was when we started in 2010. And Jack Akeley came on board, my partner. Jack reached out to Errol Schweitzer at Whole Foods, who was the chairman of grocery at the time. And, you know, his email changed to jack at com. And so he, he just told Errol, and so did I, that, hey, we're starting this new company. You know, we'll, we'll eventually meet with you and tell you what we're doing. And Errol replied right back, and he goes, what is this about halal? And we said, well, you know, we're starting a halal company. He goes, well, what do you mean? And he said, you know, this is what we're doing. And he said, why don't we meet up at one of the trade shows in a few months? And he said, no, no, no. If you're doing halal, you get your derriere down to Austin headquarters right now. I want to talk to you. <laughs> so that's how we started. And uh, Errol said to us, you know, I, you know, I went to Bronx High School of Science in New York, and half the kids in my school were Muslim, and they were all halal, and we missed the kosher category. We're not going to miss halal. So you guys, tell me when you're, you know, you're going to be ready to launch in eight weeks because we're launching you in eight weeks in all stores. <laughs> and we were like, whoa, we haven't even come up with the brand name yet, you know. And and so that's how it started. I mean, Whole Foods actually reached out to us, uh, which was unusual given that um, most brands have to sell in one or two regions of Whole Foods prove their success, and then go back to the world headquarters in Austin, present to all eight regions, and eventually, if they get approved, you know, they'll do maybe an initial launch. We've done 23 what are called national auto ships, which are national launched at Whole Foods since we started, 
Uh, we were one of the most successful brands there. We lifted for three or four years in a row a declining category in Whole Foods and frozen entrees, and we lifted it 20% with Saffron Road's entrees leading the way. So that that was kind of how we started, and we felt very strongly at that point that you know there needed to be innovation in the frozen aisle. That there really was, it was just same old school products there. There wasn't anything really that was antibiotic-free when we launched in Whole Foods. Can you believe it? They had 2,000 products in the freezer doors and not one that was antibiotic. We were the first national antibiotic-free entree there. Um, and then the story, the rest is kind of history. You know, uh, our team was awarded the best halal product in the world, uh, both in Dubai, the Global Islamic Economic Forum, as well as in the World Halal Forum in Malaysia, which is the largest uh, halal uh, you know, forum in the world. Um, we also were awarded uh, our marketing team, you know, Kate Pearson, who heads up our marketing, did an amazing job. And we won many digital awards, including the David Ogilvy Marketing Award for the Best Digital Media Category. Um, and, and from there, we went into other categories. You know, we were the first national Korean brand. We were the first non-GMO verified brand. Um, and we just continue to innovate every year and grow uh, like that with the team. Wow, a lot of different holes we can go down right now. What I want to hit on, though, is the contrarian nature of you guys. And you mentioned this is 10 years ago. No one's thinking this way. And, and to break out from the herd, you obviously have to be contrarian, but you have to be contrarian and right. So what made you so hyper-focused that you guys were correct on this and that this would be adopted in, into the U.S. buying? I, I think that we weren't necessarily looking at it so linearly and thinking, hey, let's just go after millennials. I think we always knew that, you know, aspirational baby boomers were important because, you know, the baby boomers that are educated that um, buy, na buy natural organic products also were feeling, we felt, that there weren't a lot of choices in the frozen aisle. And we knew that for baby boomers as well as millennials, convenience was a key thing, right? And so entrees are a very convenient option for those that are working. So we, we you know, we didn't, we didn't kind of you know, throw all our chips onto millennials. We were hedging, you know, we, we felt we wanted to have a strong position with this group, but what we felt most important about was the fact that there wasn't really a lot of transparency in the frozen shelf. Like for example, when we launched, um, we were the first ones really to put uh, third-party certifications on our on our labels. So, for example, even though all of our products were 100% gluten-free when we first launched, we didn't say that. We didn't say they're gluten-free. We didn't dare say that until we got the certification from the GFCO organization, which is the premier gluten-free you know certifier. Similarly, we didn't just say halal. We went and got the number one halal certifier. When they certified it, then we put the halal stamp on the box. Same with non-GMO. You know, the non-GMO verified to be non-GMO verified is grueling. We have two food scientists here. I mean, Lulu Zhu here is our head food scientist, and she went through grueling. Uh, you know, uh, process to get ourselves non-GMO verified, and we're now a leader in that category. It's even harder than organic in some categories. So we made sure to get those third-party certifications first, and we knew that in everything that we did, if we didn't cut corners, if we made sure that when we were launching Indian products, they were truly authentically Indian, something that when consumers go to a restaurant, they felt that, you know, our products were up there with the best culinary chefs. And we partnered with many chefs to do that. And then we made sure the ingredients were completely clean. And then we made sure that 
we were bulletproof in terms of transparency that, you know, that we got the best certifiers to certify that what they audited our plants and audited our facilities and our farms to make sure everything was also humanely raised and antibiotic free. I mean, by going to that length, it wasn't, we weren't doing that for millennials. We were doing that because it was our value system. And we felt that as consumers got more educated, as they, you know, as the internet and the information age made uh, their made transparency a bigger and bigger issue, uh, that they were going to go viral. You know, that they eventually they would uh, talk on social media properties or the communities that they live in um, and start to promote brands they feel strongly about. So that was really what we were thinking: is that our, our feeling all along has been it's been something I've been saying for years, which which our team's probably getting tired of me talking about. But I always say that you know the. We're not a brand that necessarily just fits into some neat uh, bucket, you know, that we feel that we're part of a, a food tribe, as I call it, you know, that um, a lot of millennials today, and as well as baby boomers and others, are focused on what, are the, what is their social identity and how does that work with them, and, and that's where we fit in. Can you talk about the visionary nature and just the ability to understand what trends will become relevant? It, it seems almost a unique skill set that, that you've developed and had over time here. And I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? No, I, I'm just really intrigued here about your visionary nature and understanding what trends are going to become more relevant. You, you just mentioned even putting, putting the testing on the label and understanding what uh, millennials might want to be buying, things of this nature. How did you discover that ability, and then how have you honed that over the years? That's uh, yeah. What I, what I try to do is I try to stay away from what's called the shiny object. You know, so if something's really hot, uh, you know, I try to stay away from that. Now that may be a failing in some ways, but um, I'm I'm always concerned when there's too much of an exuberance or a rush towards one category. I like to take a little step back and say, you know, what is really the dynamic? How scalable is it? And where will it be in five years? So. I think just doing a lot of research on certain categories and seeing where there's a need in the market. Like we knew consumers were traveling a lot more. And so I, I think I like to really pay attention to global trends, especially Europe. I mean, when I, we launched Bottle of Water, I was told by the chairman of Coca-Cola that it was a stupid idea, that it would never work. Uh, but yet I saw 30 years ago enormous consumption increases in Europe of bottled water. And I wrote a white paper saying, I think the consumption in the U.S. will be equal to that in 10 years. And everyone thought I was crazy, you know. And sure enough, today, U.S. consumption of bottled water is higher than Europe. Um, and why did I see that? Because I saw that happening in France and, and in England, right? Similarly with yogurt. When I first launched yogurt, uh, you know, and I partnered with Gary to invest in Stonyfield, everyone in the U.S. said to me, uh, yogurt, they said, you know, uh, that's where people like you from India or Pakistan or Hungary, I mean, Americans don't eat yogurt, and children, yuck, they'll never eat yogurt. I said, well, that's not what's happening in Europe. You know, you're seeing in Belgium and in France, you know, incredible increases in yogurt consumption because of its health properties and also because the yogurts you have here have gelatin in them. They're not really, they don't have the right bacteria. So, you know, I just, I, I pay attention a lot to those global trends. And what I saw, in addition to the global trends around uh, having world cuisines and global cuisines, I saw that millennials were also becoming trend centers. You know, they were traveling a lot more. Uh, I, I saw that with, with my own, you know, nephews and my son. I saw they cultivate diversity in a dynamic worldview. That's why they often 
don't really look at, we don't call it ethnic cuisine, we call it global cuisine, which is a nuance that millennials really identify with. And this group also contains a lot more Latinos, a lot more Asians, a lot more Middle Easterners. So when I was looking at the facts around that particular demographic group, I saw that, you know, 70% or something like 56% of Americans claim some kind of ethnic background and 70% of millennials claim an ethnic background. Many of them grew up eating, you know, home-cooked dishes that reflect their heritage. You also saw a huge rise in interracial marriages, a surge in TV cooking shows, right, and the ubiquity of the Internet. So when I'm looking at the confluence of all those things, I said, well, this is really going to create a new dynamic culture going forward. And that's, I think, what led me to that. And recently, I think like two years ago, Boston Consulting Group and A.C. Nielsen put out a study that really uh, was a game changer. And that study said that um, of the seven or $800 billion food and beverage industry, smaller brands like Saffron Road are accounting for 42% of the growth of that $700 billion food and beverage industry. Now, if you told me that 10 years ago, uh, you, you know, I, I would have looked at you like you had nine heads. So that's, that's impossible because it was completely controlled by Frito-Lay and Coca-Cola and so on, you know. Uh, today, it's small brands like Saffron Road that are, you know, nibbling away, taking share because we're, we are responding to these customer needs and these customer demands, which are very discerning. Can you talk about that 42% and what that looks like if we play that game out over the next decade? Are you going to have just a much more diversified group uh, of smaller to middle tier brands as opposed to these huge conglomerates? Yeah, I, I think the, the age of iconic, large conglomerate brands is definitely in threat. You know, uh, I think that whole dynamic is changing. Uh, the Internet and the information age have really made uh, uh, consumers, whether millennials or baby boomers or Gen X, a lot more discerning and, and demanding about their choices. You know, so you, if you if you look at that and, and the way consumers are changing their choices, I think that um, the more brands respond to these particular customer uh, demands as well as customers, diversity of choices, I think those are the ones that are really going to succeed. And sometimes your big CPGs are kind of frozen in the mud. You know, they're kind of like deer caught in the headlights. Uh, they're not responding to those needs quick enough. Uh, it's one of the reasons we've been so successful, especially recently uh, in Walmart, you know, where we launched. Uh, you know, we had launched into 4,300 stores in Walmart, and it's been a brilliant success. And it really proves that, you know, we like to say at Saffron Road that we sell values for value. And what I, what I mean by that is that all of the things that we do around sustainable farming, around being one of the only brands whose every single farm that sources for us has to have humanely raised livestock, right? Um, all of our chicken is ABF, antibiotic-free. All of our, our beef and lamb are grass-fed. So we have very high standards, but at the same time, we're, we're offering products at a very good value at Walmart, right? So consumers identify with that. And that's that's the growth that we're seeing. And we're our number one retailer, believe it or not, now is Kroger, uh, which is the biggest food retailer in the country. I mean, certainly Walmart sells more food than Kroger, but you know, Walmart's an overall mass merchandiser. Kroger is a pure grocery store, and it's the largest one in the country. And we're the number one natural organic brand of protein in, in Kroger. So the fact that we're, we've had this kind of success in a very short period of time speaks to that 42% growth that we're putting products out there that in a very, very tough category like Frozen continue to crush it against major brands like Nestle's Lean Cuisine or ConAgra's Healthy Choice or Kraft Heinz as well. 
Uh, and the reason we can do that and nip away is that we have had a very strong affinity and emotional connection uh, with these consumers. Uh, and Zoffer Road's consumers are bonding with us, and they feel like they're part of uh, you know, they're they're part of a new kind of consumer, a modern consumer, I call it, that really has a strong affinity for these kinds of products. Yeah, I want to loop back here in a second to, to that speed, that growth, understanding the consumers. But I, I'm also interested, what what new data points have just kind of started to to come in for you that are, are making those spidey sense of yours in terms of what trends are, are coming to fruition? Anything you've come across recently that's piqued your interest? Sure. I, I think that... Uh, Single households are on the rise in the U.S. Uh, Wall Street Journal did an article last year that said 36 million Americans live alone. It's 28% of U.S. households. There's an, that's an increase of 220% since 1960. 220% increase. Households with two people or less are about 60% of U.S. households. Very few people even realize that, right? One-person households will, according to Wall Street Journal, will be the fastest growth household demographic in the U.S. for the next 15 years. Let me repeat that. One-person households will be the fastest growing household demographic in the U.S. for the next 15 years. And affluent millennials, you know, urban dwellers, are willing to spend up to two times for single-use products. So, you know, these are pretty huge dynamic shifts in American demographics. In a way, it's a little bit sad, you know, the single households are on the rise, but, you know, as a, as a marketer and as a brand builder, you know, that those are the types of, uh, you know, demographics and, and, and marketing trends that we'd like to pay attention to if we're going to look out five years. Um, so that's one thing that, that I think is very dynamic. The other thing that I think is important is, uh, you know, we, we, in our industry, the, the gold rush right now is in plant-based protein. And there's so much of a emphasis on that. And I think that a lot of the retailers are getting very rationally exuberant in that sector. Uh, I think they're over-skewing it, meaning they're over, uh, you know, they're creating way too much uh, shelf space for some of these plant-based products that aren't necessarily natural or whole. Uh, so I think there's going to be a rationalization in that sector as well. Do you mean the rationalization, the big disconnect about a lot of the unhealthy ingredients that are going into those products? Or the, the exactly. Food? Gotcha. Okay. Exactly. So because there's not enough transparency. See, again, getting back to the mantra of transparency, I'm all for what a lot of plant-based uh, meat alternative companies are doing in terms of their mission. I mean, I know, Seth, I know some of the owners and or executives of some of those companies, and you know, they're doing wonderful things in terms of, you know, I think they're really great for the earth, and they're definitely helping move uh, a lot of our carbon footprint to a healthier footprint and a more sustainable footprint. Uh, but the question is, they may be good for the earth, but are they really good for your health? I mean, right now, if you, you think about it, um, I mean, what we do is only whole plant-based traditional proteins. Uh, we have a number of vegetarian items uh, that are plant-based, uh, but they're all traditional whole plant-based proteins. Uh, for example, uh, Clean Food Facts, which is a recently published uh, full-page ad in the New York Times, said that, uh, this is a quote directly from them, they were saying, we're being duped into eating heavily processed food that contains numerous preservatives, additives, fillers, textures, chemicals, and a link to cancer. They're high in sodium, low in nutritional quality. Consumers should not be told that highly processed fake foods are any better for them than the products they're currently replacing. And they go on to say, here are some of the ingredients that are in some of these meat alternative companies. 
Methacellulose, it's a bulking agent used in laxatives. Titanium dioxide, it's a whitener used in paint. Ferric phosphate, it's used in slug pesticides. Propylene glycol, you know, in my opinion, quite frankly, clean food should not contain highly processed ingredients with such complex and alien names. So I think that, you know, once retailers, right now retailers are really taking a big gambit. Uh, so I think a retail tour to those retailers that are creating this huge amount of shelf space, especially in frozen, for a mad gold rush of some of these plant-based meat alternative products. I do think that they're going to continue to grow. I think the plant-based category is going to do very well the next five years, so I'm not negating that. But I think there's going to be a rationalization, and the second wave of plant-based protein is going to focus on what Saffron Road is doing, which is whole traditional plant-based proteins. Yeah, I absolutely agree with, with your stance on that. One thing that is really fascinating to me as this conversation continues is just your ability to understand the number of data points and have all these statistics in your head, and you really clean, paint a very clear picture. So I'm wondering what your research process is like. What are you reading? What are you consuming? And then what are you doing to digest that information even better? Well, that's a good question. So I'm a uh you know, I'm kind of a junkie when it comes to reading periodicals and magazines and newspapers. I mean, I do read the Wall Street Journal religiously every day for 40 years. Um, and so sometimes some of my information comes from, not from primary sources, but secondary sources, which then lead me to primary sources. Uh, I do follow uh, a lot of the trade publications that come out. When I say trade publications, I mean, you know, those that are focused on the food and especially food industry and especially the natural organic sector. I happen to love uh, Hartman does a wonderful uh, analysis on a weekly basis of different categories. Uh, so I look at those. Um, we were very tuned into research at both Kroger and Whole Foods. So, I mean, Whole Foods put, just put out a major research piece as well that uh, spoke to a lot of what our brand's all about. I mean, what they found out is that 80% of Whole Foods shoppers uh, consider a quality a top factor in making decisions and over 65% of them say transparency is a top factor and 70% say they'll pay extra for high quality food so you know we when we see those kinds of studies come out we we tend to you know titrate all of the data and the talking points and understand how they apply or not apply to our sweet spot at Saffron Road so i think just being constantly um uh, informed and sometimes challenged about that's really important and then the other thing is to really understand uh, your consumer. So when we started out, you know, we had a certain idea of who we thought the Zafran Road consumer was. And then about two or three years ago, we decided to do uh, a branding study. And so we hit the road, uh, Jack and myself and Kate and some people from our marketing team and even John Umloff, uh, we went out and we went to different uh, consumers of Zafran Road. So we demographically tested three regions of the country and then we went shopping with some of some of them were current Saffron Road uh, consumers, and many of them, most of them were not, but they had an affinity to be Saffron Road consumers. And we went to their homes, we shopped with them in their stores, we went and audited their pantries and the freezers to see what they were buying, uh, and then we did group focus tests with them. That was about you know, almost three years ago, and from that, we did a whole brand refresh two years ago based on some illuminating facts that we found out about software road consumers that were some of which were counterintuitive to who we thought our original consumer was. So it's not just being informed about outwardly what's going on in the industry and trends, but also inwardly as to who your consumer is and quite frankly, that consumer can change over time. And you know, our original software consumer may have been 
somebody who was very evangelical about the brand, very dedicated to it, um, may have been a very mindful foodie. And then as we scale, um, and we have a broad approach now in 50 states and all the major retailers and 25,000 stores, you know, we may have a consumer that's tilting towards a kind of different affinity than what we originally had. And so it's important to understand, you know, where that, that, where that dynamic lies and how you can speak to those consumers in different mediums and in different ways. Yeah, that adaptability is going to be essential. I want to talk specifically about what led you to those 25,000 stores. And a little while ago, you were talking about, I think it was when you were uh, talking with Whole Foods, and they basically gave you eight weeks uh, to get in there. What has allowed you to move at that speed and then be successful when you actually do show up on shelf? I think channel integrity, first of all, is really critical. Um, so what I mean by that is that um, you know, starting small and starting in certain stores or chains or with various retail partners and then being very ethical and loyal to those partners over time and then eventually scaling that into other retailers. So, for example, we started with Whole Foods. They're, you know, the, the bride that brought us to the altar. And so we were, and Kroger as well, those were the two first retailers we started in. And so we were very, very loyal to them. Many, many years ago, Walmart kept gunning us, aggressively pursuing us to go in. And we, we said, no, we're just not going to do it because, uh, you know, we feel very ethically loyal to both Whole Foods and Kroger. Uh, and also, we want to make sure that we set the mix correctly in terms of what products are working or not before we scale into a large mass merchandiser like, uh, you know, Walmart. So I think, I think the key also is, you know, going small initially, starting with a smaller footprint of stores or partners, whether it's online or offline, and uh, making a few mistakes initially and really understanding where the product has legs to grow and where it doesn't, what categories uh, tend to scale, which ones don't, you know, where you can kind of have more control over building that business with a certain partner and does that partner, meaning the retailer, share your value system. And, you know, going through that process for a year or two until you get what I would call your retail mojo, you know, once you understand that and you're humming and you see which pipelines are doing well, then you have a story to tell. You know, then you can take that success quantitatively, and, and we do that, and we go to other retailers, whether it's, you know, a, a Target or whether it's a Kroger or whether it's a Walmart, and we can show them through very specific data, you know, how our products are moving off the shelf in certain regions, in certain stores, with certain demographics, and then use that as a platform to scale in another partner, a bigger retailer like Walmart or Costco. So I think that's really important to, you know, you don't go from zero to 25,000, in a year. I mean, it took us 10 years to get there, right? So you, you slowly build your integrity very solidly with a couple of partners that share your value system and are supportive of you and really want to help you scale uh, within their retailer. And then once you've done that, um, then you can look at, in our, in our case, and pretty much every company I've been involved in, then you can scale at the later stages into a larger footprint because you know what's worked and what hasn't worked. I absolutely love this bit of advice. Someone I'm a big fan of is uh, Paul Graham, founder of Y Combinator, and he talks a lot about in the early days you want to do things that don't scale. Is there anything that you guys did specifically at Saffron Road that isn't scalable, but you did them and it helped you get those early wins? And, and so you, you said that what's scalable and 
got to Windsor, it wasn't scalable. Yeah, so early on, before you're in 25,000 stores, you're more nimble. You're able to try different things out, so you can do things that aren't able to scale, but early on might help you get some, some little wins and successes, and you can build on those. Is there anything like that specifically that you guys were doing as a company? Yeah, I think that uh, part of what we were doing, especially in the Indian and Thai category, was building uh, very, you know, Epicurean-type uh, products that no other retailer had. Nobody, even consumers, had never seen it in a retail store, right? So when we, you know, put our chicken biryani out there, which is an amazing product, I mean, we were using really high-end basmati rice. We were using a recipe from a, you know, world-renowned chef. And and people like went out went after you know, they loved it and they still do it grows very very fast and similarly um, you know what, what, that's what we would do we would look at p- providing culinary excellence in an area that's very authentic that we felt had a strong affinity among our consumers or especially among millennials but that was not there was no innovation of that or there's no presence of that in any retailer so I think that's what. What surprised us was that some of those products that some people consider maybe are very ethnic have become very mainstream. It's almost like chicken tikka masala is the new vanilla ice cream. You know, it's like it, it's not even necessarily considered ethnic food anymore. For most millennials, that's, you know, culinary fair that they have at least once a week. So that was a little bit uh, neat for us to discover that, you know, global world cuisines have become very much a regular a household item in a lot of homes, and uh, and that's something that I think uh, we continue to capitalize on. Yeah, Adnan, you just mentioned it was exciting for you to discover, and something that was really exciting for me to discover when I was preparing for this conversation is just the amount you've accomplished, the number of things you've done and are currently involved with. So I just, I just need to know, how do you manage all of this to still run efficiently with everything you do? It's a challenge, <laughs> it's, and it's not easy. And the, you know, and I know nobody ever said it would be, but you know, the journey to better is hard. Uh, and you know, we're constantly trying to break through the ceiling and trying to reach new levels of excellence. Uh, so it is hard balancing everything. And I'm just blessed that I have the team that we have here. I think that uh, if it wasn't for the passionate team members at Zafra Road who inspire me every day and keep me going, and, and you know, we we can go through some pretty intense. Uh, you know, uh, sort of deliverables here in terms of our our team being small and the competition and what we need to accomplish. But the wonderful thing is that everybody comes together and works on the solution instead of living in the problem. So I think the the key for us really is always keeping our eye on, you know, where our goals are for the next year, the next five years, and then giving our team members the resources and capability to rise to the occasion. I mean, what I'm most proud about is a number of our younger team members that started here, some of them it was their first job, some of them they'd never been in the industry before, and just to see them every year or two uh, get more involved in the business, increase their, comp- uh, their skill set dramatically, and then contribute in a way that always surprises me on the upside. You know, I, I've been very fortunate that way that a number of our team members who may have started in one area in a very, you know, say elementary part of the business to now having responsibility for, you know, maybe 15 manufacturing plants, you know. So it's uh, it's just an amazing thing to see. And I think the more... I see team members pulling their weight in that way, the more I feel inspired to continue to do what we do. Yeah, pulling on that thread of just growth, I'm intrigued to know how you assess that personally. What What is still out there for you to accomplish? What do you have your eyes on? Yeah, I think that, that the uh, 
the, certainly the shelf-stable meals category is something we just started to, to dabble in, and we've had some good success with that, especially in Costco. Uh, I think there's a very strong dynamic because the, the culinary capabilities in that category have gone up dramatically. That's also where we play well with you know, whole traditional plant-based protein uh, entrees. So I think that's going to be an area that we're going to continue to you know, build a strong uh, level in. And I also think that this whole conversation around plant-based protein, which has been really important because it's, it's, it's kind of disrupted and woken up the consumers as to what they're eating in the frozen shelf, I think the next wave will be animal welfare. In other words, consumers will really want to know how, where did the livestock come from? Were they humanely raised? Were they mindfully handled? How were they harvested? Which farm did they come from? So I think um, the whole concept of you know animal welfare and sustainability around farming and livestock is going to be the next wave. And I think that's where our roots in that are very deep. We're one of the only brands that has very deep roots in terms of animal welfare and everything we do is humanely raised. And so I think that is something the next five years that is going to become much more critical. Well, my years have certainly peaked up just based on your history here and, and understanding where things are going. So I'm certainly going to be abreast of that and, and staying informed there. I've got a few quick hit questions for you because this this conversation has just been so insightful for me. So you down with a few quick hit ones? Sure. Yeah, you mentioned you were into articles, staying abreast of the news and everything. What about any books, anything that have stood the test of time for you that maybe you read when you were younger and it's really stuck with you? Uh, you know, I, I love uh, Daniel Lebeski, who's an old colleague and friend of mine from Kind Bar. His book, Do the Kind Thing, it's an excellent book on, on how to build a brand and, and, and all the travails that you go through in building a brand. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a wonderful book as well. And and also the one on Steve Jobs from, uh, God, I'm forgetting the author's name, it's on the tip of my tongue. Walter Isaacson? Um, it'll come to me. Yes, Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs. I thought that was an excellent book. Awesome. And then what about, is there anything you wish you spent a little bit more time on when you were younger that you think would have helped you out more now? I think probably uh, understanding the whole concept of how socially responsible businesses, which is something I was, I was only introduced to much later in life when I had my head handed to me on Wall Street. I was fortunate enough to meet you know, Gary Hersberg and Ben Cohen and Eileen Fisher, who really educated me on socially responsible business. I wish I had that edification at a much younger age. Well, luckily for conversations like this, you make me more aware of it and all the listeners, so thank you for that. Final one here. If you could sit down and spend an afternoon chatting with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Well, that's that's a good question. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, I, I think uh, Steve Jobs. I would love to find out more about how his mind ticked. That would be a fascinating conversation and one I would love to watch. So, Adnan, this has been truly enlightening for me. This is a true honor to speak with a visionary and a legend as well. So I thank you so much for coming on What Got You There. Anywhere you want the listeners staying connected with you and the Saffron Road? Sure. Just go if you go to our website, saffronroad.com, um, and you'll see a, a you know pretty much is a very robust website. It describes the whole company and our products, and you can even put your zip code in there, and it'll tell you what stores to go to and what products they have in those stores. So I, I encourage everyone to check it out. Great. Well, we'll have all that linked up in the show notes. But once again, thank you so much for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much, Sean. It's an honor to be on. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. 
If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.